This is the end. The end of a school year, the end of a letter of the Bible. It's the end. You know, before people go, they always want to say last words, right? When you go to your graduation this week, if you go, if you're graduating or if you're just, you know, visiting someone else's graduation, you'll hear them say all these big platitudes as the last words. It's always interesting to listen to someone's last words and kind of understand what's the summary of what's being communicated here. I mean, think about this. We're about to finish a book of the Bible, and every book of the Bible has the last verse, has the last couple verses. And what each author says at the end is super important because a lot of times they wrap up their point or they leave us with one final command or one final thing that needs to be kept top of mind. It's really like, you know, you see those movies. Every war movie has one of these scenes. It's the night before the battle, one of the generals or commanders of the army stands around the fire and they're all kind of looking desperately into the middle of the fire and all standing there with their armor and they're eating their last meal. And the implication of that day is like, this is it. This is the last thing. And then they usually, these commanders will probably try to rile them up or try to say, hey, remember what we're fighting for. Remember, this is for your homeland. This is for your wives, your children. Or they would try to, you know, encourage them somehow like that. Well, Paul does the same thing at the end of his book because I want you to just imagine if you were somebody listening to the book of Ephesians, it would be read in a scroll by a guy who was not Paul who came up and read this scroll and at the end of the scroll gets rolled up. The book gets put away and you're back to real life. The last words are super important, very important. Basically, his last words are gonna amount to this. Paul reminds them, I love you very much. That's what he's going to say. And then he's going to say, and you need to make sure that you love Jesus more than anything else. That's it. That's how he summarized. That's the rallying call. That's what he says. Hey, you are very much loved by me and all these people who are Christians. So people love you. And more importantly, you need to understand that you need to love Jesus more than anything else. The rallying cry at the end of Ephesians, is love going two different ways. He says, I love you guys, and you need to love Jesus. That's what he's going to end with. So I want you to open your Bibles and see that together with me. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. This is the end. So let's look at this. This has been since September. We actually started this sermon series, I believe, in August. We started the sermon series called Grace. We've done 30 different sermons from the book of Ephesians. As we've gone along, some of you have repented of your sins for the first time and become Christians this year in the midst of this study. Others of you have grown immensely by looking at what Paul says and saying, I want to apply what he says to my life. Understanding what he teaches about salvation by grace through faith. Understanding the spiritual warfare that we're in. Also understanding the mystery of the gospel that includes Jews and Gentiles. That includes all different kinds of people now into one building, one body. He uses both analogies. All that stuff has been so helpful for us. I mean, Ephesians chapter 4, talking about how we're one team here as a church. And we're supposed to be walking in love, Ephesians 5. And we need to be avoiding sin, Ephesians 5. Making the best use of our time. Living righteously as a wife or a husband or a father or a child or a master or a slave. All those different groups of people. They've heard all that and you've heard all that. And this is the end of the scroll. Look what he says. In verse 21, he says, so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. So 
really, verse 21 picks up on that last part of verse 20 where he said, hey, I'm about to stand trial. I have an opportunity to share the gospel. And then he rolls right into 21 and says, and by the way, someone's going to come and explain kind of my whole situation. So he doesn't write everything he could write about his situation. I mean, this isn't a journal. He could have you know, sent them a journal, but that's not what the book of Ephesians is. It includes very little detail about Paul's life, very little. But he says, hey, I'm sending Tychicus, and he'll explain everything that's going on in my life. So this guy named Tychicus, it says two things about him. He's a beloved brother, which means he's a Christian, and that probably the implication is that the Ephesians love him too, and obviously Paul loves this guy. And then it says also about this guy named Tychicus, he's a faithful minister. He's reliable. He serves the church. He serves God's body here. Then it says, verse 22, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. I don't know if you noticed, but verse 22 repeats almost everything he said in verse 21. I want you to know how we are. How many times does he say, I want you to know how we are? He says it like three different times in three different ways. It's interesting. When scholars look at this passage, it's like everything in Ephesians up to this point has been so carefully constructed and so put together, and then we get to verse 21, and it basically turns into a casual conversation. You know when you don't use great grammar in your sentences over text or, you know, you use a sentence, you say to somebody, hey, what'd you do? Oh, I don't know. I was, um, yeah, I was, um, last week, yeah, I, uh, I went to that, re- yeah, last week I went to that restaurant. You know, last week I, we went to this place together. You see, I just repeated myself three different times. It's kind of what he's doing. Not to say that he doesn't know what he's talking about, but this is super informal language here in verses 21 and 22 in particular. But his whole point is, I'm sending someone to tell you how I am. I want you to remember, verse 23, that I'm praying for you. Look at verse 23. He says, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people read that, and it just sounds like some kind of like spiritual equation, right? Like a, a formula. Right? So some people look at this and call it a benediction. Right? You might have heard of a benediction before. It's like a person who's speaking all these blessings on somebody. I want you to be blessed. He says here, I want you to have peace. I want you to have love with faith. So three things he asks for in verse 23, but I don't know if you caught that. He's not just telling them to have peace. Really what he's doing here is he's asking God for them to have peace. He's praying for them, but he's praying like in the text. He's asking, hey, may God give you peace. That's the implication in any benediction because if you go back to the Old Testament, all the benedictions of the Old Testament, it's always invoking God to give these blessings, not just like that they would have a good time and that you'd have good luck or good fortune. That's not what he's asking. He wants God to give them peace. He wants God to give them love. He wants God to give them faith. Verse 24, last thing he asked for. Fourth thing, he says, and grace be with all. So not just you. We've switched from talking about you, you, you guys, all of you. And then he says, grace be with all. He expands beyond the Ephesians to people like us. He says, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptibility. Love incorruptible. So he says, hey, I want everyone to experience grace. I want everyone to know God's grace. I want everyone to be thinking about God's grace. And the people I'm talking about are the people who love Jesus. And by the way, not just with any kind of love, but in some kind of incorruptible state of love. In Greek, it's weird because like the word love doesn't show up again. See, in your text, it says, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The words with love are not in the text. It just says, in incorruptibility. So if you're translating this, you actually got some hard decisions to make. What is he talking about? 
Some people translate this and say, oh, the incorruptibility he's talking about has nothing to do with love. He's just asking for a fifth thing, that they would be incorruptible, right? That they would live forever. Is that what he's asking for? I don't think so. I think the translators got this right by connecting this word incorruptibility, which means like imperishable, uh, unable to be messed up, a, a love that doesn't fade over time, a love that doesn't end over time, an everlasting love. But remember, who has this everlasting love? He says, these Christians. He says, so grace be with everybody, whether you live in Ephesus or Orange County, whether you're an adult or a kid, all those who love our Lord Jesus with an incorruptible love. That's what he ends with. He ends by saying, hey, I love you guys, and I'm sending another guy who loves you to encourage your heart. That's what I'm doing. And then, by the way, just remember, grace be with all those who love Jesus with an incorruptible love. What are the two most important things at the end here? He says, there's people who love you, and you should know that. And furthermore, you need to make it your aim to love Jesus with an incorruptible love. That's basically what he ends with. That's our two main ideas today, right? That there are people who love us, and really I want to take that idea and flip it on its head and not just encourage you by saying, hey, there's people who love you. Because, you know, some of you have a lot of people who love you. Some of you have only a few people that love you. That's the reality, okay? Some of you have tons of people. You've got dozens upon dozens of family members and people who love you. Others of you don't have as many people in your life who are supportive and who love you. I know you all have some, but here's what's important. I want to take what Paul and Tychicus do, and I want to say, let's try to do what they did for other Christians, and then we'll take verse 24 and say, what does it mean to love Jesus with an incorruptible love? So we're going to do two things today. The first two points are all about us saying, we want to be like Paul and Tychicus. And then point three is going to be about how can we apply what he says about incorruptible love. So first thing. Tychicus. What does Tychicus do? Well, we find out that he's a faithful servant, and what he's going to do is he's about to strap on his shoes, he's about to put on his cloak, and he's about to walk a really, really long way. Why? Why is he going to take this journey? Because he has to? Not because he has to. Because Paul told him to? Well, Paul's in jail. Paul can't really make him do anything. Why does Tychicus strap on his shoes and walk hundreds of miles from the city of Rome to the city of Ephesus? Why does he do it? Well, the implied thing here is that it's because he loves them, like Paul does, and he's a faithful servant, he's serving Jesus, and furthermore, he's there to encourage your hearts. Encourage people's hearts. How much would you be willing to do? How far would you be willing to go? What obstacles would you be willing to overcome to do this one simple thing? Encourage somebody's heart. That's kind of convicting, isn't it? Think about it. He's about to strap on his shoes, put on his cloak, and go a long way to encourage people's hearts and to be there for people. I want to learn from this example of Tychicus. So point number one is this. I want you to strive to be an encouragement by serving like Tychicus. Strive to be an encouragement. Make it a name. I want to be an encouragement to other people, to other Christians. I don't want to be someone who takes away by my presence being there. I want to add by my presence being there. I want to be helpful. I want to be encouraging. Well, how do you do that? Well, Let's start off by just talking about what Tychicus does. Tychicus goes a long way to serve these Christians. Some things you should know about Tychicus. First of all, um, we think he first shows up in Acts chapter 20, uh, right after the passage about Ephesus. So if you're in main service right now with us, if you go to main, uh, Pastor Mike's preached on Acts 19. And in Acts 19, we see that whole scene of the Christians in Ephesus. It's just the, the birth of the church, right? Acts 20, right after that, we get a list of Christians that were companions of Paul. One of them, who's listed, is named Tychicus. So, where does Tychicus come from? Well, Acts chapter 20, verse 4 says that Tychicus is from Asia. Like, well, Asia, like, what do you, when you think of Asia, what do you think? Right? Like, 
Korea, China, Japan. Like, that's not what Asia was in the, old, in, the, in the New Testament. Asia was the area called Asia Minor. It's really where Turkey is today, and that's where Ephesus is. So Ephesus, Colossae, um, the, the churches of Galatia, that's all in Asia, or it's Turkey. If you looked on a map today, if you pulled out Google Maps and like, okay, where is this? If you type in Ephesus, it's a city. Well, it's a ruins of the city, but it's in Turkey, right? So this guy probably, my opinion is, he probably came from this church. So he was probably an Ephesian. How did he end up in Rome, right? Well, hard to say, other than we already see in Acts that he travels with Paul. So it's like a homecoming for Tychicus to go back and interact with the Christians there. He says, hey, I'm sending one of you guys, Tychicus. He'll be with you. You find out in the book of Titus later on that Titus was thinking about people to send to the island of Crete. He sent Titus, but another person he said he was going to send was Tychicus. So this guy is a caring guy. He's a faithful servant. He's a beloved brother. But he was so useful that Paul was thinking about literally sending him as a missionary to this island of Crete, a place that he had never been before. But instead, he decides to send him to Ephesus. And even five years later, we see he's sent to Ephesus again. In the last book that Paul ever writes in 2 Timothy, so this is five or six years after the book of Ephesians is written, Paul writes another letter, and he writes it to Timothy, and you know what he says in there? I sent Tychicus back to Ephesus. So this guy was coming and going to Ephesus, which seems like that ended up as his home base because he's from there, because he loved those people, and he went a long way to serve those people. I want you to think some questions about yourself when it comes to the encouragement that you bring to other Christians. What would you be willing to do for other Christians? Obviously, the start here, he says he went to encourage your hearts. And that sounds obvious, but I want you to think through this question. Do I care about other Christians and their hearts? Do I care about other Christians and their hearts? Do I care about what they're feeling? Do I care about what they think? Do I actually care? Like, because some of you, if we answer that question honestly, it's like, I actually really don't care about other people. I do my own thing, and I stay out of the people's way, and I don't really care. Some of you think that. Others of you are caring. And you think, okay, well, I don't care about everybody, but I, I do care about some people in particular. I care what they think. I care what they're feeling. I just want to start there. Do you care about other Christians and their hearts? Do you care? I care what they think. I care what they feel. And there's a lot of good examples of this in Scripture. Tychicus is one of them, but also Timothy was one of them. When Paul was sending people to these different churches, one person that he sent to a church was Timothy. He sent Timothy to Philippi, and that's um, what we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Paul writes about Timothy. It seems like Tychicus had already left, um, and even before all that, we think that the book of Ephesians was written at the same time as the book of Colossians, and Tychicus carries both letters. We see in the book of Colossians, it's almost the same outro. It's almost the same conclusion. Like, hey, I'm sending Tychicus to you, and he'll tell you about me. Right? In the book of Colossians, there's another guy who he sends with. So we think that there's two men who go carrying these letters, Tychicus and a guy named Onesimus. Onesimus, you might know from the book of Philemon. The book of Philemon says that Onesimus used to be a slave for Philemon. He ran away, broke the law, and likely stole things from Philemon's house. Philemon gets saved. Onesimus gets saved. But Onesimus gets saved with Paul in Rome. Now he sends him back. Some commentators say he's not mentioned here because Paul doesn't need to mention Onesimus to the Ephesians, but he needs to mention them to the Colossians because you know where Onesimus and Philemon are from? Colossae. So he sends these three letters, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon with these two guys, Tychicus and Onesimus. 
I was talking about Timothy. Timothy was sent by Paul to various places. And here's what Paul says about Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who genuinely is concerned for your welfare. Let's say you had to get sent to visit somebody who's going through a hard time and go to their house or to write a text message to them or you know, write a letter. If we were kind of giving assignments like, hey, who, who's the people who really care for others? Who are the people in this room who have a genuine concern for the welfare of others? That was Timothy. That was Tychicus. We even see that with other examples. Obviously, Jesus is the greatest example of that, that he cares for others. But think about that. Can can we really say that about you? Can we say that about you with your small group? Like when you look at your small group, are you the one that genuinely cares for the others? Are you the one that could kind of, you know, I don't give a rip. They come or don't come to church. If they're here or they're not here. You know, they're worried about their thing, I'm worried about my thing. Is that how we think? Or do we genuinely care for other people? I think if there's anything that we're taught in this little verse here in Ephesians 6, 21 is, and 22 is that Tychicus cared. We need to care. Do you care? Further, do you prove your care by actually doing things for people? I mean, think about it. You can, might say, I do care. Like, I can think of five or six people that I really deeply care about. People maybe in my small group or my friends or maybe my family members. I really do care for them. Okay, the next question logically is, well, what do you do to prove your love and care? What do you do? Do you visit? Do you put on your shoes and put on your cloak and go and leave your house to go encourage somebody or to serve people who need it? If we say we care, do we actually serve, right? First John 3 says we can love just in word or talk, but we really should love in deed and in truth. We should do things for others. And, and doing things might include talking and words and encouragement that we give, because that's what Tychicus is going to do, right? Like, how is Tychicus going to encourage him? By giving him a big hug, right? I don't I mean, maybe, <laughs> probably not. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Is that really going to be the encouragement of Tychicus there? Probably not, right? What's Tychicus going to do to be an encouragement? It's going to be to give words, probably to read this letter, to actually probably to fill in the blanks, of all the things that Paul doesn't explain, he's probably going to sit there and explain the Bible to them. Encouragement. By going, being somewhere with people, and helping them know God's word and understand it. Right. That's one way we can prove our love for other people. Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, I will most gladly spend so what I have and be spent for your souls. So like if I have to spend the money I have or the time I have, I can do that. And by the way, if I end up feeling like I was spent by talking to you or to being with you or by serving you, he says, I'll do it. What is that? That proves that he loves these people. I just want to say, could you, could you imagine saying that and actually mean that? Are there people in your life that you are serving like this? I, we want to be like Paul and Tychicus. We want to be people who really go and love other people. But do we? Do we care? Do we prove it? Thirdly, do you have a reputation like Tychicus? I mean, think about his reputation. He's known as a beloved brother, which means, hey, you guys love this guy. It's like saying, oh, yeah, you guys know Tychicus? Dude, you guys love Tychicus, don't you? Isn't he an awesome guy? Man, think about how he serves you. And then also, he's a faithful minister, as in he serves you guys. These people have been served food by Tychicus. Tychicus has visited their mom in the hospital, right? Tychicus has prayed by their bedside. I mean, that's the kind of guy Tychicus is. He's there for people. Are you? That's the question. 
Because we could admire someone from 2,000 years ago all we want, but the question is, do you do that? Do you have a reputation as a dependable Christian servant? Do you have a reputation as being late when you say you're going to be there, or are you there on time? Are you there for people when you say you're going to be there for people, or is it kind of just up to whenever you feel like it? Are you dependable? Are you a guy that, you know, people say, yeah, that guy gets things done for people. He doesn't just talk. He's really there for people. Are you a girl who really cares for the Christians in your group and doesn't just say that you'll pray for somebody in your small group, but you actually do, and everybody knows that you actually do? That's the kind of person Tychicus was. And I think that's something we can learn from. Obviously, the thing that happened here was Tychicus saw a need, Maybe Paul said, hey, I got this need. However, they got together, but he said, I'll meet the need. Another thing that can be helpful for you to think about this is do you see other people's needs and are you willing to step up and meet those needs? Do you, do you want to meet those needs? Tychicus seems to want to. This doesn't seem to like, oh, Tychicus is coming, but you know what? It was like kicking and screaming to get someone to go to visit you guys. That's not how it's presented. It's like, hey, you, you know this guy. He loves you. He's excited to visit you. If you think about serving other people, there's a difference between wanting to serve other people and willing to serve other people. You might be a Christian who's willing to serve other people. You're willing to go on the mission trip. You're willing to serve at Camp Compass. You're willing. And then there are people who want to. My wife wants to go to the dentist. I'm willing to go to the dentist. Sometimes. I'm actually ignoring my dentist right now. Um, just, I just didn't call back. They said call back and schedule, and I, just, I, just, I didn't, and then, you know, a week went by. But my wife would call back. I mean, man, she, she, she'd go once a week if she could. You know when they, like, scrape the plaque off your gums, and they say, you should really floss more? It's like, yeah, I know, I know. Um, I said that at Revival Winter Edition, that I always get narked for, you know, my gums bleeding when they, you know, you know what I'm talking, you've, you've been there, right? You've been under the knife and they, not the knife, sorry, the little pick. <laughs> Maybe you've been under the knife too, but uh, different. Hopefully your surgeries go well. No, but like the, the little pick. My wife likes it getting scraped off her, like so it's all clean. Right? I'm like, okay, I like the clean feeling, not all for the scraping part. Like I don't like that part. And then, you know, they, they, you know, they squirt a little bit of water in your mouth and they put the hose thing in there and they say, you know, Clothes, right? You're like, right? Do you want to do that? No. Like, my wife wants to do that, I guess. Maybe because her teeth are always, like, perfect and clean. So maybe that's why she likes it. But I don't want, I'm, I'm willing, though. Like, I, I would. But I'm not, like, a person who's saying, hey, can I visit, like, three dentists? I really love this. I read them all about this, right? Are you willing or do you want to go to the dentist? What, which side do you fall on? Are you a willing person or a wanting person? Well, I get asked the same question about service. Are you a willing person to serve? Some of you are maybe completely unwilling, and you wouldn't do it. Okay, well, I'm not talking about you. But I'm talking about the rest of you who think, you know what, yeah, I would like serve. I could do that. Like, I could help other people. My question is, do you want to? Is this a passion that drives you? Because if it is, I would know about it, right? Your friends would know about it. Your family would see it. Your parents would notice. You're probably different than your siblings. If you had, like, this drive to serve other people. Most of us live in the, like, I'm willing to do it if I'm called on it, I suppose. I just want the example of Tychicus to be one that, like, inspires you to say, I want to be not just willing, but wanting to. Where can I serve? How can I step up? Who can I talk to? Most important question of all is, who, who are you going to serve, right? Tychicus had a very clear goal in mind. 
the Ephesian Christians? What about you? What are the needs in front of you? What are the people in front of you that need help or encouragement? Even if it's not like you meeting a physical need, just encourage their hearts. Who are the people that need that? If you look long enough, you'll find it. That's what Tychicus does, but here's the problem. Tychicus could go and leave Rome, and he can go visit, and he could go hug him and give him a holy kiss and read the book of Ephesians and do whatever Tychicus did, right? He could do that. Guess who couldn't do that? Paul couldn't leave. He was in jail. How many times in the Bible does Paul say, I wish I could be with you. I wish I could be there, but I, I can't right now. Right? So he's writing these letters, right? It's kind of the purpose of these letters. If he was with the Ephesians, he wouldn't write the letter. He'd just tell them all this stuff. Paul couldn't be there. But there's something that Paul does in verses 23 and 24 that is something that you can do for Christians, no matter if you can visit them or not, no matter if they live next door to you or not, whether they live all around the world or not, there's something you can do. And it's to pray for them. That's what Paul's doing. He's praying for them to have peace. He's praying for them to have love. He's praying for them to have faith. And he's also praying for them to know God's grace. Four prayer requests that he prays for. So, to kind of look at Paul's example and take his example and follow it in our love for others. Here's what I want you to write down for point number two. I want you to care for Christians from afar by praying like Paul. I want you to care for Christians from afar by praying like Paul. When you got the opportunity to be there like Tychicus, do it, right? That would be the best thing. But even if you can't, even if you're too busy, even if you've got something important and you can't drop that thing for school or for your sport and you can't just drop everything, you know there's something you can do. You can stop and pray for them. You can pray for God's love to be in their life and his peace and for them to have faith in God and for them to know God's grace. These four prayer requests are so good. If you're in Ephesians 6, verse 23, 24, just look up to verse 18. Verse 18, we covered last time we were in Ephesians, it says, the most important part of the armor of God is praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. That means prayer requests. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Look at this phrase. This is what I'm getting at. Making supplication for all the saints. What does that mean? That you're getting your eyes off of me and my problems and my family and my disagreements and my discomfort and saying, I want to pray for you and you and you and not just me. Supplication, prayer requests for all the saints. That's what he's doing here. He's praying for peace, love, faith, grace. Let's think about those. Peace. What does it mean for you to pray for other people's peace? Well, I want you to make it an aim to say, if I'm going to pray like Paul, I'm going to pray that other Christians would know God's peace. They would be at peace. I want to pray for that. I want to pray that they would understand God's peace, as Philippians 4 says, that surpasses all understanding. I want them to not be anxious. Like, what can you do to help someone's anxiety? Have you ever thought about this? Like, you know, anxiety feels like such a personal problem. There's a lot of sins that feel like personal, right? Okay. What can you do to help somebody who's discouraged? You could be there for them, and that's helpful, but you can't always be there for them. Right? You can't sleep on their couch every night, right? You can't always be there, you know, when they wake up. You can't always do that, right? But you know what you can do is you can pray for them in the morning. You can pray for them at night, and you can tell them that you're praying for them too, for their peace. Remember, Jesus is our peace. We see that in Ephesians chapter four or, or two, Ephesians two fourteen. Paul says, remember, Jesus is our peace. He's broken down whatever walls separate, in that case, Jew and Gentile, or, you know, you as a Christian with any other Christian, no matter your background. So Jesus brings Christians together. He should bring you 
and other Christians together. You should pray that they would know God's peace. I read a story this week of a pastor trying to tell his congregation about like finding peace in the right place. I thought it was funny. He said that in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a retired couple from the United States that was looking for a place to retire. Right? They had just finished their jobs, but they were very, very consumed with the news, and they were like doomsday preppers. Right? They're like, the world is going to end. Where should we go? So they were making plans on where to go. They literally traveled all around the world and said, what's the safest place in the entire world that will not be hit with a nuclear attack? That's what they were most concerned about, right? In the late 70s, early 80s, it was, you know, Russia, it was hiding under the desks, it was, you know, nuclear bombs at any time. So they were really afraid of that. So they searched all over the world and they found a place that they thought would be the most safe. They landed there in the late 70s, early 80s. There's two little islands off the coast of Argentina called the Falkland Islands. Do you know anything about history in the Falkland Islands? In 1982, the United Kingdom and Argentina fought over these two random little rocky islands in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean next to Antarctica and Argentina. No nuclear power, no, you know, bombs going off like that, but they went and they tried to find the safest place on the face of the earth, and guess what? They walked right into a war zone. That pastor who told that story was like, you see, everybody's looking for peace, but you know what? People are always looking for peace in the wrong place. People are always thinking they're going to find peace in something that's not going to give them peace. And as long as we're on this earth, there's really nowhere you can go to escape from the chaos of the outside. But here's something you can do. You can pray that Christians would have peace inside. You can pray that their hearts would be at peace. That they could sleep at night like I know a lot of you can't. There'd be Christians that are praying for others who are saying, I want you to have peace. You should pray for the Christians in your life, especially the ones you know they're going through something hard or the ones that are anxious to have peace. And then he says, pray that they would experience more love. Right? What does that mean? Well, I think if you're praying for Christians to have love, you're probably doing what Paul did in Ephesians 3 when he was praying in Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. He, he asks God on their behalf, he says, I want them to have strength, these Ephesians. I want them to have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does it mean for you or Paul to pray that Christians would have love? I think what it is is that you would understand God's love for you, and when you understand God's love for you, now you're going to be loving to other people. That's the implication of Ephesians 3. The point of Ephesians 3 is that they would know God's love, that they'd think about God's love. Have you ever prayed that for another Christian? God, I want you to make sure they know your love. God, please bring to their mind everything that you've done for them. Please remind them of how much Christ has loved them by dying on their behalf. Remind that Christian. Please, God, please remind my brother in Christ. Please remind my sister in Christ how much you love them. I know that's going to be bolstering to their hearts. That's what he's doing. And I want to challenge you to do the same. Pray for other Christians to know God's love. He says love with faith. Right? So I think those two ideas are you know, related, that you don't experience the love of God unless you have strong faith in God. But that's another thing you should pray for. You should pray that your friends have more faith in God, that they trust him day to day, that they trust him ultimately for salvation. Right? But that's assumed for these people. He's not saying, hey, get saved, because these are saved people. He's saying, please, God, 
strengthen their faith. Remember how important faith is to our spiritual battle? Perhaps the most important defensive weapon in the armor of God in Ephesians 6, 16, was the shield of faith. The reason that's so important is because Paul explains what faith in God does in our spiritual war. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Why don't you think about that? If you pray for other Christians to have stronger faith in the Lord, what you're praying for is, God, please, please help that Christian trust you and not choose the temptation that's tempting them to sin. God, please strengthen their faith. Show them that your promises are real and they're for them. God, please strengthen that person's faith. Please help them trust you. I know they're going through something really hard, but help them trust you. Or even like we talked about before in Ephesians 6, 18, 19, praying proactively, praying that I know that storms in their life will come if they're not in it right now, but I pray that they'd be strong. I pray that they'd trust your providence, God, I sure that they would find a sure and steady anchor for their soul in Christ, not in their school, not in their college, not in their success, not in their beauty, not in their sports achievements, not in any of that. God, I pray that these people would find it in you, that that Christian, that brother, or that sister would find it in you. That's what it means to pray for peace, love, faith. And the last one's grace. Right? What does praying for grace mean? Well, these Christians are people who have been saved by grace through faith. And Paul makes that abundantly clear here in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So what is his whole point in this book? He's thinking just trying to get them to see. Look at God's grace. Look what he did for you. Look how much he loves you. Look at all he's done. Do you see what God has done? Like, do you understand how much that helps Christians? That should help you to just think, oh, what did God do? What is God's grace? What has he done? What did he do for me? You do that, like you start thinking of God's grace. It's related to another word that we have in English. You start to become a grateful person. You start to have gratitude. You start thinking about all that God has done. Have you ever prayed for another Christian to be more grateful? God, please make that person more thankful You've done so much for them. Please remind them of all the good things that you've done for them. Instead of a backhanded way of like insulting them to God in your prayer. Like they're not very grateful. They should be more grateful. Instead of that, it's praying, hey God, please, please show that person how much you've done for them. Show that person the love of Christ. Show them every way that you've blessed them in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. That they've been chosen before the foundation of the world that in him they have redemption through his blood, and that they're sealed by the Spirit, that they're never going to be taken out of your hand. Remind them of that. You know, built into all these things, all these prayer requests, you know what be really helpful for you? Is if you prayed these things, and then you communicated with the people that you're praying for, I prayed for you today, and here's what I prayed for. That you would be reminded of all the good things God has done for you that you would have God's peace which surpasses all understanding, which will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you told somebody that, you understand the encouragement to their hearts that that would be. Imagine if you confided in a brother or sister about something that was hard, and then the next morning, early in the morning, before you woke up, that you'd wake up to a text message from a friend who said, I love you, I'm praying for you, and I'm praying that God would give you his peace I'm praying that God would grow your faith, that you would trust him more today, that you'd see how good he is, 
that you know his love because he loves you and I love you. And who wouldn't be encouraged by that? Right? Any genuine Christian would find encouragement. In that. And that's what I'm saying. Right? He leaves them with this. He says, I love you. Tychicus loves you, and he's going to talk to you all about that. But I just want to tell you, I'm praying for you to have peace, love, faith, and grace. You've got to tell people that you're praying for them, too. You can't do point number two and then just, like, don't tell them. You should tell them if you can. But even if you can't, it's still good to do. That's what we learned from Paul and Tychicus. Now, I want you to change gears because, again, most of the book of Ephesians, as we've studied it, we're trying to understand what Paul said for them to do. And we kind of just slot ourselves right in there and they're, okay, we want to do it, what the Ephesians should do, right? For that last two points, we kind of put ourselves in the author's shoes and said, we want to do what they did, right? So we're going back to the Ephesians and say, okay, what is Paul calling them to do? Because by saying, hey, I love you, he's not really calling them to do anything. But do you understand that this last phrase, grace be with all, who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible, that's a reminder of the kind of love that we should have for Jesus himself. Point number three, never let your love for Jesus grow cold. That's the last lesson we learned from the book of Ephesians. Never let your love for Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, never let your love for him grow cold. That's what it means to be incorruptible in love. Some people translate that word incorruption sincere, right? Like real, genuine. Some people translate it never-ending. I think it kind of has both of those ideas, right? It's like, what's something that's incorruptible? Right? Unbreakable. That's another word for it. Unbreakable. Unfading. But also, there's the sense of like a, a deep, personal, zealous, passionate, like I really, really care for these people. And what he says here is, remember to love Jesus more than you love anything else. That's kind of the, the point. I mean, John ends the book of uh, 1 John kind of similarly. He, he talks about all this stuff, and then he says, hey, by the way, little children, keep yourself from idols. What's the translation? Don't love anything else more than Jesus. Don't put anything before God. That's just kind of how he ends his too. Paul does the same thing here. This phrase is like used in Scripture in a couple different ways, this incorruptible language. The word is used in 1 Corinthians 15 to talk about our new incorruptible bodies when we, you know, Go to heaven, and then we get these new bodies after we go to heaven at the resurrection. When we live on God's new world, we'll have real physical new bodies. And the word that's used to describe those bodies is incorruptible bodies. Same word as this one right here. The idea is it, it, nothing's going to fade it. Nothing's going to ruin it. It's going to be perfect forever. The scriptures say this, right, that you need to love Jesus Christ. We talk about a lot of things at church, but sometimes we don't talk about how you need to love Jesus Christ. You gotta do a lot of good things, yeah, whatever, right? You gotta be a certain kind of, okay, yeah, but you have to love Jesus Christ. If that element is missing, you need a lot of good things. But, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, if you do amazing things but you have not love, you're, you're, you're nothing. Didn't make a difference. 1 Corinthians 16, 22 puts it the opposite way. It says, if anyone has no love for the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. So it's the other way of putting this. Here he says, hey, those who love Jesus passionately and forever, everlastingly, grace be to them, a anybody. doesn't matter where they come from. doesn't matter if they're going to be born 2,000 years from now. Grace be to them. But 1 Corinthians 16 puts it the opposite way. Whoever has no love for the Lord Jesus Christ, well, might as well be cut off. Let him be accursed. If you don't love Jesus, that's, like the, that's the starting point to all this. 
to understand how good Jesus has been to you and that you would love him, not just practically on the outside, but also in your heart. Both of those should be connected, that your heart and your life agree that you love him. That's the uh, phrase that Jesus used with Peter. After Peter had sinned and fallen, he had chosen to not obey Jesus and to, for a while actually, for a whole day, a couple days, he denied Jesus. He said, I don't know you. After he said, I'll never deny you. Jesus meets up with him, and the next time he talks to him, in John chapter 21, after the resurrection, he asks, do you love me? He didn't ask, hey, you're going to do better next time. He didn't say, hey, you failed the first time, but like, hey, let's pick it up. Let's try again. He says, do you love me? He asks three times, and Peter is embarrassed at the end. Don't ask someone something three times and not expect it to be a little bit insulting. <laughs> but he says here, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You know, that's important for you. I, some of you are going to you know, graduate and go to college. Some of you are going to just move up to the next grade. But, and you're going to like, some of you are going to be successful. Others are not going to be successful. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, it's just the truth. It's not to your graduation speech, but it's true. Some of you will have all these hopes and dreams that will be dashed by circumstances. Some of you will accomplish all of them and more, right? What's most important is what you do with that last phrase. Do you love Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love? The reason I say that is because, you know, the book of Ephesians is just 1 Ephesians. You know, there's another book of the Bible that's 2 Ephesians. You know that? There's another letter to Ephesians. It's not written by Paul. It's written by somebody else. It's not stapled at the back of your Bible. But it is in the last book of the Bible. You should all turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Do you know Revelation 2 is the second letter to the Ephesians? Did you know that? Ephesians chapter 7, 2 <laughs> Ephesians. This letter is not from Paul. This letter is from Jesus himself. Look what he says to this church. Same church. 35 years later or so. It's been a while. Ephesians 7. I'm just kidding. Revelation 2. So I, I don't want to confuse you. Sometimes I'm saying it, it's a joke, right? It's, it's not, I, whatever. I've heard that if you have to explain the joke, it's not funny. So there you go. Revelation 2. John writes about this. He says, He's quoting Jesus. See the quotation marks there. It's implying that Jesus said these things. It says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The idea is, it says, These are the words of Jesus. And remember who Jesus is. He's the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven golden lampstands. We've already seen that these lampstands represent these churches. And we're going to see he even uses the word lampstand to reference this church. Here's the point. Remember who's talking to you. He says, this is Jesus who's talking to you. Remember who I am, Jesus says. I'm the one who knows all things. I control every church. I'm the Lord of whatever church still worships me. He says, verse number two, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. So he says, I saw when you were doing the right thing and when you made good choices, I was there and I saw all of it. Your patient endurance. They're probably suffering. They're likely being persecuted. He says, I've seen all that. Good job. Verse 3. He says, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You're, you're gaining eternal rewards and you've not grown weary. All that's really good. That's what you'd want to hear. If Jesus wrote a letter to your church after you got a letter from Paul, 
that would be exciting news to hear. It says, hey, you're solid, you're orthodox, you, you believe the right thing. And for the most part, your life, you're, you're mostly doing the right thing. I know that you're patiently doing the right thing. Look at verse number four. But there is a problem. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. It's ironic that the book of Scripture that ends with, hey, make sure your love goes, is incorruptible. That only a few years later, Jesus says about your church, your love has proven to not be incorruptible. Your love has been waning and fading and growing dull and growing cold. Verse 5, he says, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. So first of all, you need to stop and remember. These are Christians he's talking about who loved Jesus at one point passionately, first, first and foremost, no distractions. And he says, remember from where you've fallen. Remember how you worshiped me. Remember how you served me. And then he says, repent. That means to turn around. Change your mind. Do a different thing. Go back and do the works that you did at first. So there is something about their works. Their works are not as good as they were before. They're good. I mean, they're better than most. They're a good-looking church. They believe the right things. They do the right things. But he says, you've lost your first love. You, now you just lose it. It's not like it's under your couch and you didn't know where it is. You abandoned it. You threw it away. You replaced me at the top. That's what Jesus says to them. He says, if not, if you don't love me first, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He says, there will not be a church here anymore. I'm going to remove it if you don't love me first. I don't know about you, but does that sound extreme or big? It sounds like a, a huge reaction to a, a, just a little lack of love. It means they're doing the right things. But Jesus says he's right to not have a church there if they're not loving him first. That's a warning to each and every one of us who comes, to true, who comes to True North or goes to church and calls himself a Christian, just remember at the core of that is the like assumption that we shouldn't assume that we are to love Jesus first with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might and all our strength. He says in verse 6, okay, by the way, you're good. Like You do hate the works of the Nicolaitans, probably a false teaching group, which I also hate. And here's what he says, verse 7, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, right? The one who actually does what's right in all these letters to these churches. The one who does overcome the world. He says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's a callback to Genesis 1 and 2. The idea that perfect satisfaction can happen where God is. Do you notice what he's doing here? He's saying, okay, you Christians, if you've lost your first love, if you don't love Jesus like you should love him, Here's the thing. If you repent and you do love him like you did at first and you keep loving him, don't you understand that he is ready and willing to satisfy you to the fullest? You can eat from the tree of life, the thing that will satisfy you forever. Like, you think that loving these other things are gonna satisfy you? You think that loving yourself is gonna be better than loving God? Psalm 16, 4 says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Your life is going to get a lot worse if you choose to worship things that are not the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what his, his point is. But he says, to those of you 
Jesus says in Matthew 5, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you start to want what's right and you start to pursue Christ and love him first, you'll be satisfied, completely satisfied. This is a warning to you, to me, to everyone. It doesn't matter if you go to a good church. It doesn't matter if you come from a good family. It doesn't matter if you don't have any of that. Right? What matters is if you love Jesus and you hold on to what he says. Cool, this year we've studied a lot of different things about the love of God and understanding the love of God. Um, what's been really cool personally for me recently, not that recently, a uh, year and a half ago, understood a little bit more about what love is now that i got little, uh, little Eden running around, my daughter. Right? I understand a little bit more about love that I didn't understand before. Not that I didn't understand love, right? I did, but now it's like a different level, right? It's really funny because, you know, you see Eden walking around. She's, getting, she's in a bad mood today. So this is a bad day for me to tell you this story. But she, uh, she's, like, pretty lovable. I mean, she's kind of, like, independent, does her own thing. But it's hard to, like, not love little Eden, right? If she says hi to you or gives you a high five, it's like she's so cute. And for me, you know, it's like I feel like I don't have to do much for her. Like, I'll show up, you know, I get home. Alexandra's with her all day, working with her all day, you know changing her diapers, feeding her, doing all that stuff. But I walk home, and it's da-da, 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 and she's all excited. It's like, what did I do? Like, I'm just showing up, right? And you play, you know, the dad character, like, oh, what's up? You know, um, like you're supposed to do. It's interesting, though. Like, I've not earned Eden's love. I didn't really do much for that. I'm just her dad. Um, I guess I kind of try to do stuff for her. Not that I'm, like, trying to get her to not love me. <laughs> that would be weird. I could blow it one day, right? She could not love me when I'm you know, older, but my point is, it's hard to, like, do anything but love her just because I can see how much she cares about me and what I think, right? There is something to that, I think that's helpful for this last little verse. Uh, we should be compelled to love Jesus because of what he's done for us, right? Eden hasn't done squat for me, right? She's my daughter. I mean, I love Eden, but, like, she hasn't done much for me. You know who's done a lot for me? Who's done a lot for you? The Lord Jesus, he's done a lot. And if you ever are letting your love fade and grow cold and slip to the background and other things are becoming first place in your life, you know what you just need to do is just remember what Jesus has done for you and that puts him right back on top. I hope that the sermon does that. I hope that the book of Ephesians does that. And I'm praying for you, whether you're going to be a sophomore next year or next week, whether you're going to be a junior, whether you're going to be a senior, or whether you seniors are going to be freshmen again. Congratulations. It all starts over. Whatever you do, it's my prayer that you would know that we love you and that you would love Jesus with love incorruptible. Let me pray that that would be the truth for you guys this next year. God, we look at your word and we're amazed at all the things we've learned this year. Pray that you continue to speak through your word next year as we study it. Pray for all these students going off, doing their different things this summer and this next year. Pray that they would keep you in first place they love the Lord Jesus more than they love themselves, more than they love romance, more than they love sports, more than they love school, more than they love achievements, more than they love money, more than they love status, more than any of that. I pray that they would love you more than their friends or family, that they would love you first. I pray that would be true of us, pray that would be true of me, I pray that you would grow us in this area, and that we'd be effective people who live to serve you every day of our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.